This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello. How has that barking dog of a mind of yours been this last week? Maybe after the the discussion in our last program, it has learned to settle down a little and take a good, if uncomfortable, look at its own commotion, as Dr. Alex Burson recommended. Or perhaps not. For those confused as to what I'm talking about, over the last three weeks, we've been considering the text, The Eight Verses of Mind Training, by the Tibetan master Langri Tampa, which goes like this. Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit for all sentient beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. When in the company of others, I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay." Whenever I see beings that are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I had found a precious treasure. Now last week we commented on the second verse, When in the company of others I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. Returning to the mention of the barking dog at the beginning of our current program, last week I quoted from Dr. Alex Burson's commentary where he compares the mind trying to contemplate the benefits of cherishing other beings to a dog tethered to a post. That's what our minds are like, says Dr. Burson. When we try to stay focused on the benefits of cherishing others and thinking of others and that it really is a losing battle to think just of myself, we don't want to accept that and we feel very uncomfortable. It's like we're the dog trying to get away from the mindfulness what's holding us to the post of this thought. The only way to start to actually feel it on an emotional level, not just the intellectual understanding, is to just force ourselves to stay there. And the longer that you stay with this thought, eventually the ego-powered mind gives up and relaxes. And it's when you relax with the understanding that then you start to begin to actually feel it. At least from my own experience, I find that's the only way that we can break through this barrier between intellectual and emotional understanding. It's all a matter of how much you relax with the understanding. Well, did you manage to relax with the understanding? Or did the dog just keep on incessantly barking and pulling at its chain? Now before we go on, let's stop as we usually do and set our motivation for the program today. And as usual, please try to bring your focus to a vast motivation, like bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment for the greatest benefit of all beings. That would be wonderful. But if you can't do that, please at least motivate 
that this program will become a cause for your own freedom from suffering and enlightenment. Thank you. In his commentary on the eight verses, Dr. Burson goes on to say that it's not the case that we shouldn't examine things critically. In fact, as you will probably know, the Buddha encouraged us to look at everything with a critical mind, not to accept anything just because he said it, or because it seems true, or it was something nice to believe in. In pointing to our objections, that's the barking dog, Dr. Burson is talking about the post-examination period, that is, after we've done our critical examination and have seen what is true and what is not, but we still don't want to accept it. Then it's a matter of relaxing, he says, and that's very much the teachings that you have in Shamata, a stilled and settled state of mind. Quiet, the mental agitation. In his book, The Joy of Living, Yongi Mingyo Rinpoche has something to say about this. He writes, You are not the limited anxious person you think you are. Any trained Buddhist teacher can tell you, with all the conviction of personal experience, that really you are the very heart of compassion, completely aware and fully capable of achieving the greatest goal, not only for yourself, but for everyone and everything you can imagine. The only problem is that you don't recognize these things about yourself. In the strictly scientific terms, I've come to understand through conversations with specialists in Europe and North America, most people simply mistake the habitually formed, neuronally constructed image of themselves for who and what they really are. And this image is almost always expressed in dualistic terms, self and other, pain and pleasure, having and not having, attraction and repulsion. As I've been given to understand, these are the most basic terms of survival. Unfortunately, when the mind is coloured by this dualistic perspective, every experience, even moments of joy and happiness, is bounded by some sense of limitation. There's always a but lurking in the background. One kind of but is the but of difference. Oh, my birthday party was wonderful, but I'd like to have chocolate cake instead of carrot cake. And then there's the but of better, I love my new house, but my friend John's place is bigger and has much better light. And then there's the butt of fear. I can't stand my job, but in this market, how will I ever find another one? Yongi Mingyur Rimshe goes on to say, Personal experience has taught me that it is possible to overcome any sense of personal lim limitation. Otherwise, I would probably still be sitting in my retreat room, feeling too scared and inadequate to participate in group practices. As a 13-year-old boy, I only knew how to get over my fear and insecurity. Through the patient tutoring of experts in the field of psychology and neuroscience, like Francesca Varela, Richard Davison, Dan Goldman and Tara Bennett-Goldman, I've begun to recognize why, from an objectively scientific perspective, the practices actually work. That feelings of limitation anxiety, fear and so on are just so much neuronal gossip. There are, in essence, habits and habits can be unlearned. Why is it then that when we still the mind these habits can be calmed? Why do they lose their force when our mind becomes like a quiet pond? Dr. Alex Burson explains that with a still mind we get more emotional understanding so the emotions 
have less control over our reactions. Plus, he says, and I quote, If you can quiet down sufficiently, then when you get to the nature of mind, the various good qualities are all there, present. It's just a matter of quietening down enough to get in contact with a basic quality of warmth and understanding and acceptance and openness and so on. And these, I think, are the qualities of what we in the West would call an emotional understanding of something, when we actually can accept it. He goes on to claim that one of the ways to gain such emotional understanding and to see others as more important than oneself is to remember how many others there are and oneself is only one, and to focus on Buddha nature. And that brings us to another quite thorny question. What does he mean by Buddha nature? Well, with next to no experience, I can't say. But a lot has been written about it in Mahayana Buddhism. In fact, Yongi Mungya Rinpoche gives quite a neat explanation in The Joy of Living. It is, he says, the fundamental background mind that is behind all our neuronal gossip and is so vast that it completely transcends intellectual understanding. And those are his words. It is known as Tathagatagaba from the Sanskrit, which literally means the nature of those who've gone that way, which means the nature of those who've overcome all their limitations. But, as Rinpoche admits, this doesn't really convey much to us, nor do other translations like Buddha nature, natural mind, true nature, enlightened essence, and even ordinary mind. To really know what this mind is, you have to experience it, which even limited beings like myself may do in very occasional glimpses. Rinpoche writes, For most of us, our natural mind of Buddha nature is obscured by the limited self-image created by habitual neuronal patterns, which in themselves are simply a reflection of the unlimited capacity of the mind to create any condition it chooses. Natural mind is capable of producing anything, even ignorance of its own nature. And he emphasized that last part with italics. In other words, Not recognizing natural mind is simply an example of the mind's unlimited capacity to create whatever it wants. Whenever we feel fear, sadness, jealousy, desire, or any other emotion that contributes to our sense of vulnerability or weakness, we should give ourselves a pat on the back. We've just experienced the unlimited nature of mind. No matter how much we are overtaken by our neuronal gossip, It can't change the nature of the fundamental mind, Rinpoche says, and writes, Thoughts like, I'm ugly, I'm stupid, or I'm boring, are nothing more than a kind of biological mud, temporarily obscuring the brilliant qualities of Buddha nature or natural mind. Now sometimes the natural mind is likened to space, in the sense of profound openness. When you lie back on the beach, or in your garden and gaze up at the cloudless sky, what do you experience? Your mind may go still and limitlessly open and peaceful. Rinpoche says, Like space, natural mind isn't dependent on prior causes and conditions. It simply is. Immeasurable and beyond characterization, the essential background through which we move and relative to which we recognize distinctions between objects we perceive. It is, he says, naturally peaceful and not disturbed by what we think of as mentally painful. It is what he calls a perfectly effortless state of relaxation. But that relaxation is a long way from what we normally call relaxation. 
Rinpoche goes on. So now, the next time you sit down to eat, if you should ask yourself, what is it that thinks that this food tastes good or not so good? What is it that recognizes eating? Don't be surprised if you can't answer at all. Congratulate yourself instead. When you can't describe a powerful experience in words anymore, it's a sign of progress. It means you've at least dipped your toes into the realm of the ineffable vastness of your true nature, a very brave step that many people, too comfortable with the familiarity of their discontent, lack the courage to take. So we can't say that when we still our mental chatter with shamata or similar practices, we will necessarily experience what Rinpoche calls natural mind. But the possibility is always there, even in our busiest times. Reading what Rinpoche wrote and glancing once again at the second stanza of Langritampa's Eight Verses, I was struck how even glimpses of the natural mind may help us in the quest to consider ourselves lowest of all and to hold others dear and supreme. When the mind is open, spacious, and without even a consideration of I, how easy it must be to be unconcerned by desire, expectation, that normally push us and our concerns to the foremost. Don't you think that a continual mindfulness of our very limited experiences of the natural mind may help to train us to put others first? At least it could give us pause when we are about to give in to some self-aggrandizing tendency, and that pause may give us enough time to prevent our habitual self-centered pattern and to be the start of another, much more beneficial reaction. But now let's continue with Langritampa's text and move on to the third verse, which reads, Vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without delay. Ask what is the cause of suffering, and the answer, from a Tibetan Buddhist point of view at least, will be delusion, or afflictive emotion, and karma. So here, Langri Tampa, with endangering myself and others, is pointing to the experience of suffering, and is saying that to avoid that suffering, we have to prevent its cause, delusion. And as we've noted in a previous program, although both delusion and karma are said to be the causes of suffering, without delusion, karma cannot ripen and manifest. So even if we have an enormous store of negative karma, if we are free of delusion, it cannot harm us. Then what do you have to do to avoid giving in to delusions? Be vigilant. In other words, be very mindful of what's going on in our internal world. Of course, we have both positive and negative tendencies, some strong and some not so powerful. However, the more forceful they are, the more easily we are overtaken and react in accordance with them. So Langritampa is echoing the teachings that urge us always to be mindful so that we can catch them before they cause us any damage. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that if we look at our minds and actions when totally self-absorbed, we will find that negative minds are at the root of our behavior. We should, he says, immediately apply some antidote to weaken them. The general opponent to all the disturbing negative minds is meditation on emptiness, he says. But there are also antidotes to specific ones that we as beginners can apply. Thus, for attachment, we meditate on ugliness. For anger, on love. For close-minded ignorance, on dependent arising. 
for many disturbing thoughts on the breath and energy winds. He clarifies that by dependent arising, he means either the twelve links of dependent arising, or if you want to go to a more subtle level, interdependent origination, to establish that things are empty of true existence. Then elaborating on seeing the ugliness as an antidote to being attracted to alluring objects, His Holiness says, We develop attachment to things because we see them as very attractive. Trying to view them as unattractive or ugly counteracts that. For example, we might develop attachment to another person's body, seeing his or her figure as something very attractive. When you start to analyze this attachment, you find that it's based on viewing merely the skin. However, the nature of this body that appears to us as beautiful is that of the flesh, blood, bones, skin and so forth of which it is composed. And now let's analyze human skin. Take your own for example. If a piece of it comes off and you put it on your shelf for a few days, it becomes really repulsive. And this is the nature of skin. And all parts of the body are the same. There is no beauty in a piece of human flesh. When you see blood, you might feel afraid, not attached. Even a beautiful face, if it gets scratched, there's nothing nice about it. Wash off the paint, there's nothing left. Ugliness is the nature of the physical body. Human bones, the skeleton, are also repulsive. A skull and crossbones has a very negative connotation. So that, that is the way to analyze something towards which you feel attachment or love, using this word in the negative sense of desirous attachment. Think more of the object's ugly side. Analyze the nature of the person or thing from that point of view. Even if this does not control your attachment completely, at least it will help subdue it a little. And this is the purpose of meditating on or building up the habit of looking at the ugly aspect of things. Actually, we cannot be completely free of attachment until we experientially understand the nature of reality. So the meditation on emptiness is the best for killing the negative disturbing emotions. However, that meditation is difficult and also has its perils. So it's better to use other meditations, like this one on ugliness, to weaken the negativities until we are knowledgeable and skilled enough to meditate on emptiness. His Holiness goes on to explain the difference between attachment and real love. He says, The other kind of love or kindness is not based on the reasoning that such and such a person is beautiful, therefore I shall show respect and kindness. The basis for pure love is, this is a living being that wants happiness, does not want suffering and has the right to be happy. Therefore, I should feel love and compassion. This kind of love is entirely different from the first, which is based on ignorance and therefore totally unsound. The reasons for loving kindness are sound. His Holiness goes on, With the love that is simply attachment, the slightest change in the object, such as a tiny change of attitude, immediately causes you to change. This is because your emotion is based on something very superficial. Takes, for example, a new marriage. Often, after a few weeks, months or years, the couple become enemies and finish up getting divorced. They married deeply in love, or nobody chooses to marry with hatred. But after a short time, everything changed. Why? Because of the superficial basis of the relationship. A small change in one person causes a complete change of attitude in the other. 
We should think, the other person is a human being like me. Certainly I want happiness, therefore she must want happiness too. As a sentient being, I have the right to happiness, and for the same reason she too has the right to happiness. Now this kind of sound reasoning gives rise to pure love and compassion. Then no matter how our view of that person changes, from good to bad to ugly, she is basically the same sentient being. Thus, since the main reason for showing loving kindness is always there, our feelings towards the other are perfectly stable. And His Holiness also points out that meditations on love are the antidote to anger, because, he says, anger is a very rough, coarse mind that needs to be softened with love. When we enjoy the objects to which we are attached, His Holiness continues, we do experience a certain pleasure, but, as Nagarjuna has said, it is like having an itch and scratching it. It gives us some pleasure, but we would be far better off if we did not have the itch in the first place. Similarly, when we get the things with which we are obsessed, we feel happy, but we'd be far better off if we were free from the attachment that causes us to become obsessed with things. That's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Now how many delusions are there? A multitude. Sometimes it's taught that the Buddha gave 84,000 teachings because there are 84,000 delusions. Books like The Path to Purification go into depth on such things, but the Tibetan system lists six main delusions and 20 secondary afflictions. The six are, of course, attachment, aversion, ignorance, pride, doubt and wrong views. The secondary afflictions are belligerence, resentment, concealment, spite, jealousy, miserliness, deceit, dissimulation, haughtiness, harmfulness, non-shame, non-embarrassment, lethargy, excitement, non-faith, laziness, non-conscientiousness, forgetfulness, non-introspection and distraction. I have taken this list from Geoffrey Hopkins' great tome, Meditation on Emptiness. Now, under all these delusions, we create all sorts of negative actions, producing karma that will ensure we will suffer in the future. Of course, there are dire actions, like the five heinous crimes, killing one's mother, killing one's father, killing an arahat, drawing blood from a Buddha, and creating a schism in the Sangha. But perhaps apart from the last one, these are not all that common or easily committed. More particularly, we have to watch out for the ten non-virtuous actions, that is, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words, gossip, covetousness, harmful thoughts to others and wrong views. What makes each of these actions negative is the deluded motivation. For instance, if we kill, it's either because of attachment, like desire for meat, or aversion, such as killing a cockroach, or ignorance, like making animal sacrifice, thinking it will bring liberation. And stealing can be motivated by attachment for someone else's possessions or wanting to harm another person, maybe for revenge. It could even be due to ignorance, like some students of a great teacher, one of whom was Shakyamuni in the life before he became enlightened. The teacher taught his students that guru devotion, that is devotion to the teacher, was the most important thing in attaining enlightenment, and then told them that to prove their devotion to him, 
each had to steal something and bring it to the class the next day. Well, the next day's class duly came to pass, and each student showed the teacher what he had stolen for him. However, when the teacher came to the future Shakyamuni, the student said he had not stolen anything. Why not? roared the teacher. I never heard that stealing benefited anybody, said the boy. And then the teacher said that out of the whole class, only the student who didn't steal had understood the lesson he was trying to teach. Even if your master, to whom you are totally devoted, tells you to steal, you have to be very vigilant, and if seeing it as negative, politely decline to do it. In any case, we could go through all the non-virtuous actions and we'll find an illusion impelling each one of them. For this reason, although we might get some short-term benefit from a non-virtuous action, in the long run it will only bring us sorrow. Of course, some negative actions are much karmically heavier than others, even though they may be motivated by the same delusion. For instance, killing out of attachment for meat is much heavier than, say, gossiping out of attachment for, well, gossip. Still, we don't kill all that often, but once we develop attachment for gossiping, we can be on the phone or at the water cooler all day, tittling tattling about this one and about that one. Then, because gossip is repeated so often, the gossip karma can become much heavier than the killing karma. Talking about gossip and the delusion behind it, there's one delightful Sufi story about a man whose favorite occupation was gossip. The antidote to his negativity wasn't some mental exercise as His Holiness recommended for attachment, but instead depended on a wise man and a chicken. I found the story in a book called Soul Food by Jack Cornfield and Christina Feltman, and it goes like this. In the neighborhood where Mullah Nasruddin lived was a man named Aziz, who was known to all as a great gossip. Aziz could be found day or night in the market or tea shops telling the latest, often untrue stories of who did what in every part of town. He spread rumors, passed judgment, told tales, and sowed seeds of disharmony. Some days, when his stories came back to him, even he knew it was too much. But what could he do? Finally, his friends decided to send him to Nasruddin, the local wise man. Nasruddin wasn't very helpful at first, having a similar problem himself. But finally, he thought of a plan. Bring me a chicken from the market, he told Aziz, and hurry quickly. And you must make sure it is cleanly plucked, with not a feather remaining on it. Aziz went off to the market and purchased the chicken, after which the seller began the laborious job of plucking. Then Aziz became impatient. He took the chicken and immediately returned to Nazaruddin, pulling out the remaining feathers as he walked back. He entered Nazaruddin's doorway and handed him the chicken. Nasruddin put it down and demanded that Aziz go back and bring him all the chicken feathers. Impossible, cried Aziz. By now the feathers had scattered halfway across town. It is like this with your words too, Aziz. As soon as you open your mouth to sow a tail, it flies out like the wind carries those feathers. It spreads across town and nothing can retrieve it. You must beware the feathers that fly from your tongue and not fill the air with them. Aziz returned home chastened by this. Apologetic to his friends and community, he took more care when plucking his words. And we're going to have to leave the program today with Nasruddin and Aziz, for now our time is up. 
Thank you for being with us today and please do tune in again next week. Before we leave, please also dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment so we can all best benefit all other beings. Thank you and have a wonderful week. Farewell until next time. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.